Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Um, We have been looking at the Gospel according to Luke, and today we're going to look at Luke chapter 6, verses 39 to 45. Um, And it is kind of a follow-up in Luke from his version of the Sermon on the Mount, um, in in which actually he sets up kind of a tension, a a dialectic almost, between the present and the future. And, uh, And in so doing, draws us then into an understanding of the orientation of our lives. Um, so often we can become completely absorbed and stuck only in the present moment. And we fail oftentimes as well to, uh, to consider what the present actions of our lives and the present situations of our lives, what role it plays in the determining of our future. And so if we have kind of a personal perspective lesson to learn from the Sermon on the Mount, it's that that today makes a difference for tomorrow, and that our time makes a difference for eternity. He, he then stretches that out, and he continues then in extending his investigation of who we are and what our relationship is, not only to the future, but to one another, which is also very much a part of the Sermon on the Mount. So it begins, the gospel begins by saying, Jesus told a parable to his disciples. Can one blind man guide another? Surely both will fall into a pit. The disciple is not superior to his teacher. The fully trained disciple will always be like his teacher. Why do you observe the splinter in your brother's eye and never notice the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is of, of, that is in your eye when you cannot see the plank in your own? Hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you will see clearly enough to take out the splinter that is in your brother's eye. The personal challenge that comes to us in this particular passage of the gospel is something that we have to take very, very much seriously and deeply into our hearts. The implication is, of course, that probably none of us are really perfect and that none of us are without fault and without sin. That for any person that is honestly reflective and deeply knows themselves is a fact. There are none of us. I mean, this is, this is, is part of uh, the problem, not only of uh, imposing an evil understanding of somebody um, on, on another person, but also when we loosely, um, when we loosely impose upon them also um, positive terms and, and positive qualities and positive titles. The idea is we never really truly know the other person, and to a great extent, very few people actually deeply know themselves either. So that there is presumption and there is in pride when, in fact, we set ourselves up as the guide to others um, when we ourselves are flawed and faulted in so many different ways, and we have so many inadequacies and so many weaknesses. 
I think the whole idea of trying to guide or to lead other people, and this is true in families with parents, and it's true in any kind of guardianship thing. It's true in any kind of spiritual relationship of priests or religious or even um, lay people who, um, who in some way, shape, or form place themselves as a guide, as a guide, as a director of other people, that this takes an enormous amount of self-knowledge, honesty, and humility. For never can we impose our own false sense of righteousness upon another person. We can find someone in the most deadly of sins, and if we look deeply into ourselves, we will also see the capacity for those sins lying deep within ourselves and simply utter a thanksgiving to God that we never actually actualize them in our lives if in fact we did not. I think a great saint um, giving us a lesson in this particular, in this particular situation is St. Claude Columbiar. He was the confessor to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and one of the ones who made possible the institution of the, uh, of the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And St. Claude says that, uh, St. Claude says that um, no Christian is ever scandalized. Think about that in relationship to the modern age, and think of it in relationship not only to the secular world in which we live, but to the church itself. Um, no Christian is ever scandalized, for we all walk along the precipice, he says. And it should be no surprise to us that occasionally some fall in. Um, a, uh, I suppose another more common way to say that is there but for the grace of God go I. We have to realize within ourselves the potentiality and the possibility of deep and serious sin in our own lives, through our own weakness, through our own inadequacy, through our own um, um, life situation. So that when he says one blind man cannot guide another or surely both will fall into the pit, what he's really saying is that anyone who assumes the position of a director of another person, a corrector of another person, a guide of another person, had best not be blind to their own inadequacies, blind to their own sins, blind to their own capacity for sin. Um, St. Claude also says that uh, we in our spiritual lives should cling so tightly to Jesus Christ that if he decided to send us to hell, he would be obliged to accompany us. I think this notion that somehow or other our strength comes from our relationship with the Lord and not from the, not from the exemplary goodness of our own lives is something each of us must be, must be aware of. It's something that parents must be aware of also, that the authority over your child, certainly you have procreated your child, but God has created that child and God has entrusted that child to the parents. And the parents, in some way, exercising their natural rights and their natural authority over the child, also, however, function as surrogates of the good God, of the living God, and that they carry within themselves also not only the responsibility for the well-being of their child, but the responsibility to the creator of that child to, to um, perform the deed tasks entrusted to them in a holy and a deep way. And for the parent simply to, and we see this certainly in issues of, of child abuse and so forth, that parents just assume a natural right to, terror, to terrorize or t tyrannize their children. 
and uh, and we see it in all sorts of sad and unfortunate things. We find it also as an element in the whole abortion argument. You know, the child within me is biologically attached to me and therefore belongs to me. I am not a surrogate of the Lord. I am not a steward of the goods of his creation. I am absolute within myself, and I can do with my property whatever I wish, with this child whatever I wish, because it is dependent on me and therefore belongs to me. I think this lack of understanding of the stewardship nature of life itself is in some way, shape, or form very detrimental to us. And if we do not see that, and if we do not understand that, the whole presumption that somehow or other we have the capacity within ourselves alone to guide and direct direct other people makes us actually a blind person, makes us actually someone who does not know ourselves. For one of the very basic, one of the very basic elements of human life is that we are children of the loving God, that we are creatures of the divine, that he has made us, that we belong to him in so many ways, and that he has entrusted to us the care of his people, of his creation, all of those kinds of things. Violation of that is a rejection of our of the natural relationship that we have with the Lord, the one that comes to us from creation itself. So that a person who does not know within themselves of this tremendous dependency on the divine being and this contingency of the notion of our own role in life contingent as it is upon our fulfillment of the dual responsibility to that which is entrusted to our care, to those who are entrusted within our care, and our responsibility to the one who has created them and entrusted them to us, our responsibility to the living God. Which is why, in a great, in a, in in one sense, for instance, the the whole politicization of uh, environmental concerns is somehow or other um, distorted and unreal. We have environmental obligations of stewardship, and the cre- the created order does belong to the living God and not to ourselves. We have the responsibility of caring for everything that comes forth from his hands. But when we ourselves don't understand that contingent part of our own being, that dependent part of our own being, we assume an, an, an illegitimate lordship over others and over the world. And in so doing, inevitably, we do evil. Inevitably, we fail. Inevitably, we as the blind, um, leading the blind, fall into a pit. And so Jesus then goes on to say, in relationship to this, that um, the disciple Um, that the disciple is not superior to his teacher. We ourselves cannot trump the word of God. We ourselves cannot in some way, shape, or form put it aside. uh, And and so often, like in, in this whole debate about contemporary debate about marriage and divorce and so forth, We have Catholic theologians saying, well, Jesus' words are too harsh. I will supplant them with my own. And in so doing, of course, they become the blind guide of the blind. They become the one who has presumed themselves to be superior to their teacher. 
And then Jesus goes on to say, but the true disciple, the fully trained disciple, will be like his teacher. And like his teacher, if we remember the Lord Jesus is our teacher, he is the word to which revelation comes to us, yet he himself stands before humanity and says, I do nothing on my own. I do only what the Father has told me. The Father and I are one. I do only what the Father says. He himself acknowledges in his own way that somehow or other he is not independent of the Trinity totally and that he has an obligation and love to the Trinitarian source of his own earthly existence as well. And Jesus gives us that example of understanding dependency, of understanding that as a man, he is dependent on the divine for the deep depth of his life and the power that he exercises and the things that he says. Then Luke goes on to say, for instance, why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye and never notice the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you cannot see the plank in your own? Hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye first and then you will see clearly enough to take out the splinter that is in your brother's eye. (coughs) Once again, the theme continues. The present derives its meaning from the future and the future becomes what the present has determined. And so in, your, in our own way, when we ourselves are not fully knowledgeable, when we ourselves do not see this fragility within ourselves, this fragility of which St. Claude Colombier speaks, no Christian is ever scandalized, basically because we understand our own fragility, our own capacity for sin. And uh, and then Jesus is saying also, without that understanding of the self, without knowing that which we truly are capable of, without understanding that, grasping that, seeing that is part of our life, knowing, for instance, that what we have, we have received, um, without that, our attempt to correct someone else is simply ludicrous. It is hypocritical. Luke says. The idea of the splinter and the beam, of course, is, is, is Hebrew hyperbola. Um, it is exaggeration to make a point, a matter of speech, a figure of speech um, within, within the Hebrew idiom. And so he wants, it's an emphasis, it is a powerful emphasis on the, again, on the, on the fragility, the weakness of every human person, and to assume in some way, shape, or form a stance of absolute moral righteousness and superiority to those poor benighted souls who do not see or understand. It is a call, therefore, within ourselves to conversion and to virtue. That we, and this is part of the problem with this radical politicization of, of the faith, this radical politicization, something Jesus, by the way, in the scriptures never did. We never find him in a tirade against the Roman Empire. Um, we do find him condemning religious hypocrites who have distorted the covenant. Those are the only people that he turns. He does not turn on sinners. He does not turn on the Roman occupying forces. He does none of that. 
but he does condemn those who distort the whole notion of religion. And they are the examples in some way of what this gospel is seeking to address. For it is this whole struggle that Jesus has with the, with the, with the bad Pharisees, with the, with the Pharisees who somehow or other have assumed unto themselves the divine wisdom and the divine power and lord it over others in their external manifestations of their privileged positions and so forth. It is here, it is these are the ones um, that Jesus is angry with. We somehow or other have gotten ourselves into this situation, and there is a certain legitimacy to it, but it is a difficult one. And that is somehow or other, someone says, well, I'm a social justice Catholic. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Um, if you are, you are a Catholic or you are not a Catholic. If you are a Catholic, then you live as a Catholic lives. And if your interests then are in the arena of actively working for the alleviation of the suffering of others, um, then so be it. The church has done that for century upon century. But to say that the mission of the church is a political or sociological mission is to be blind. And to guide others is to lead them and fall into a pit, the pit ultimately, which will be of unbelief. So that what happens then is that there is a call in this for true humility. That doesn't mean denying what I already have or denying the things I can do. True humility is an honest insight into the self and a truer, deeper knowledge of the self. None of us ever completely know ourselves. There always resides within us deep and untapped um, areas and regions of, of mystery within the human person, even to themselves. Yet at the same time, we only know ourselves too in the revelation of Jesus Christ. St. Bernard says that no one knows themselves unless they know their origin and their destiny. Our origin is the divine. Our destiny is the divine. We do not know ourselves. We can be in therapy for 40 years, know all sorts of things about ourselves. But in knowing all sorts of things about ourselves, that does not mean that we know ourselves if we are not aware of our contingency of our nature upon the goodness and the benevolence of the living God of the Creator. And so then then Luke turns from this kind of this kind of it's not really theoretical, but this these images, the images of uh, the plank and the splinter, the images of the blind leading the blind, the images of the relationship between the disciple and the teacher. He turns from that then, having made the point that somehow or other we are blind if we do not know our dependency on God and if we do not understand that our mission is to fulfill his will and his word. Then he turns and he says to a more practical level, and he says there is no sound tree that produces rotten fruit, nor again a rotten tree that produces sound fruit. For every tree can be told by its fruit. People do not pick figs from thorns nor gather grapes from brambles. A good man draws what is good from the store of goodness in his heart. 
A bad man draws what is bad from the store of badness, for a man's words flow out of what fills his heart. And so once again now Luke is telling us that um, there is kind of an example, there is kind of an indication of whether the heart is rightly ordered toward the divine or not. And that is, what does the work of the person what, what does the work of the person produce? You can't have someone who says, "I am a virtuous man, I am a good man, or a good woman," and yet evil flows from them. Um, and you cannot say that you know, well, they are a very good person. It's just too bad everything they do is wrong. Um, that kind of thing makes no sense. There is an integrity between the human heart and human behavior, between the tree and the fruit that it produces. And so he says, in a sense, uh, that a good man draws what is good from the store of goodness in his heart. Where does that store of goodness in his heart come from? The store of goodness in his heart comes from that which is given to him by the Creator God in his creation <clears throat> and in his striving after goodness and his openness to God's divine grace. For, in a sense, divine grace that comes into us is actually uh, the streaming of God's love. The word, the Latin word gratia is dependent upon the Greek word charis, and charis simply means love. So the real meaning of the word grace is love. Going back to this relationality between God and, and humanity. That which transforms and changes a person is love. We know that even in the human realm. We know that there is no married couple who says after 50 years, well, you know, I've been married for 50 years, but I'm exactly the same as I was the day I got married. This has not changed me inside at all. Of course it has. And of course, the love of the spouse has in some ways opened up, transformed, and enlarged the capacity for love of the other person. The same is true in friendships. They open the heart to receive goodness, but the goodness they receive is the kind of love <clears throat> that God imparts to those who, who are close to him. And that love is what they impart then to others. For, it, for we ourselves are not isolated, we are not alone, we are not autonomous beings with, with, um, with somehow or other self-creating beings, which is part of the heresy of the modern culture, derived, of course, from the Enlightenment and especially from the writings of John Locke. We are not self-creating beings. Um, this is one of the great heresies of modern secular society that I am the captain of my ship, I am the master of my soul. Um, such is not the case. Such was a deceit and a delusion of the Victorian era, one that sounds poetic and somehow or other seems to exude a sense of strength and independence, but in the end actually is fallacious and foolish. For we are not the captains of our ship, and we are not the masters of our soul. We are dependent upon the source of that soul, and the source of that soul is the living God. In order for that soul to be sustained in good health, then that soul must also remain open to the life-giving force of its origin. And the life-giving force of its origin is the life-giving for is God's love for that soul. And the love for that soul we call grace. 
And that grace is what sustains and opens and strengthens the human soul in order that it might, therefore, as he says in the beginning, somehow or other be like his source, be like his teacher. For we, if we are close to the Lord, if we are open to the streaming of the Lord's love into our hearts, then we ourselves become the source of that love for others, not because of the greatness of our being or the goodness of our person, but because we have openly give what we have openly received. And when we give that, we give that is free from our own reconfiguration of it as possible. The closer we are to giving that in the purest form that it receives, that we receive it from the Lord, is contingent upon ourselves. Being repentant, being honest, being self-knowledgeable, understanding our dependency, desiring that closeness with the Lord, desiring the good of others as Jesus does, that no matter what the trials, no matter what the difficulties, no matter what the problems, that somehow or other we can desire good for another. Even the most heinous of persons, one who does horrible things, we can desire somehow or other a kind of good for them which is transforming and alleviates the evil that they are able to do. This kind of relationship between God and his people is what the church is all about. The church does it most effectively through the sacramental system, for it is in the sacraments that the love of God flows most in a most unfettered way into the souls and into the hearts of others. And that we as the ministers of those sacraments and we as therefore the keepers of the word and the presence within the church, it is ourselves as God's people who participating in these sacraments and participating in this presence somehow or other try to open our hearts that that which God seeks to disperse and and diffuse into the world and we become willing vehicles and willing um, vehicles for his goodness into the lives of others. When we cut off that stream of his goodness to us, we cut off the stream of our goodness to others, and all then becomes a sounding, a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. All of it is, as Shakespeare said, sound and fury signifying nothing. That without God as the source and the center, without God as the very core of human existence, without that, then human activity becomes empty and hollow. We can see the damage done by those, by what we come to call do-gooders. We can see in some way, shape, or form how they in many ways bring about consequences that are, make the situation worse than it was in the beginning. But if it is done in love, and if it is done in the love which comes into our hearts from the living God, if that is done, if that is done, then somehow or other the good works bear fruit. We have seen that over the centuries and over the years in the work of the church. We've seen it in the orphanages, in the hospitals, in the schools. We've seen it in the social service programs. We've seen it in the care of the poor. We have seen it certainly recently dramatically in the work of, of Mother Teresa and, and the missionaries of charity, where it is not it is not social revolution, it is not 
political solution. It is simply the love of God which is imported in which is imported into the hearts of the suffering, and in that brings consolation, peace, hope. In other words, infuses the present with that which prepares it for the future. So that all that we do that is good is not somehow or other to self-justify, but to prepare every living person for that encounter with the living God, that they may be found worthy to be with him and may be found worthy to share in his glory when the end of time comes and when the eternal now becomes the fixed reference point of all existence, of everything that is can be and will be. It is our hope. It is the promise. It is all things that we live for. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.